You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. With me this week is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, sir? I'm good, David. How are you? I'm. I, it's been a really, really long day, but I had some cool classes and did some cool things and feel feel like I've... I feel a, a glow of accomplishment, so that's that's what we all work for, right? I'm proud of you, buddy. Thanks. Also with us is Nathan Gilmore, um, associate soon to ascend to full professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Wow. Now, now. At what stage are you in this metamorphosis? Are you in some kind of like a a pre-full professor chrysalis? Are you the very hungry caterpillar who's still kind of gorging himself in preparation for that? Like, well, like, well here's the deal. We? The the faculty promotion pr- committee has voted me through. The president has signed off on it this Friday, so it will already have happened for our listeners. The board of trustee votes, and then the promotion becomes official, and then my paycheck changes at the end of June. Nice. nice. What are you going to do with that extra 20 bucks a month? <laughs> uh, old books, old books, always old books. <laughs> a safe investment. I have an announcement too, which uh, our listeners who are friends with me on Facebook or who follow me on Twitter might already know this, but this is going to be my last semester at Crown. I have decided to leave. They haven't fired me. And no, I don't know what I'm doing next. So if anybody within the sound of my voice uh, happens to know of a job that they think I could do well, besides the garbage man, uh, why don't you uh, feel free to let me know? Or garbage man. That seems like a nice <laughs> job. I'm seriously considering becoming a letter carrier. You've talked about that as like a dream job. It just seems like something. Everybody's happy to see the letter carrier. You get some fresh air, some exercise. You're doing real good in society. I've always liked the Postal Service. I feel like did that wouldn't get, be a bad job. Did you get that idea from Mr. Rogers? I'm just asking. I probably got it from Cliff Clavin, to be honest. Uh. <laughs> so anyway, if anybody knows anybody on the inside at the U.S. Postal Service, you know, mention me. Pass my name along on one of those uh, yellow slips of paper you get at the post office. Is, is that how that works? I don't know. All right. Anyway, hopefully, uh, hopefully I'll know what I'm doing. And Victoria, I don't know if she hasn't made this announcement, but, you know, whatever. Victoria is also leaving her job, so we're free to go anywhere in the country or free to starve to death. Freedom's free- just another word for nothing yeah. left to lose. 
Yeah. You're going to start a sing-along here, Michael, and you don't want me to finish it. <laughs> that that, that uh, second of angry silence said it all. I I just have no idea how to transition into the next thing, which is asking what is new on the network. We've got a fair bit going on on the network. First of all, uh, we have a new sectarian review on theology and socialism. Uh, we've got a Christian Humanist Profiles interview with Nick Riggle on the book On Being Awesome, a unified theory of how not to suck. Uh, and we've got the debut of... Yeah, I, I, I didn't think I'd be able to get through that one. Also, his name is Nick Riggle. That's a great name. It really is. And I'll, I will say that, that was my interview, and it was a fun interview. He's one of those guys who's just very erudite, but wears it very lightly. Uh, so it's just a fun conversation to have. Awesome. Also, we have the debut of Complementarian-ish. Uh, this is a new show, but it will be on the Christian Feminist Podcast feed. There will be no need for a new subscription. Uh, I'm looking forward to listening in on it. Uh, you know, anything else to say about this new show, guys? Or should our listeners just go check it out for themselves? Have you heard it, David? It's it's Katie Grubbs, among others. Right. I, I've heard her side of it. Um, haven't haven't listened to the, the raw audio yet. They were still... Um, in the process of editing it last time uh, last time we talked about it. Our listeners who don't know this, uh, the, the rules of complementarianism require David to be in the room while Katie records all her episodes in case she says something that reflects poorly on the family. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. Whenever she uh, starts edging towards anything that would make me personally or God unhappy, I kind of shake my head at her and, and she stops. That's exactly how it works. That's not how it works. Oh, dear heavens. That, no, it, it means that I watch the kids while she goes back in a quiet room and records. So, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, Katie Grubbs, uh, the, the, the second doctor in my house, uh, is, is the one who is uh, helming that particular little side foray of Christian Feminist. Should be good. Uh, two days after this drops, there'll be a new episode of Before They Were Live. We'll be talking about the Jungle Book. I don't know if it's I, good or not. We haven't recorded it yet. I am so looking forward to this one. I love Jungle Book. Uh, you know, I rewatched it last week in preparation for the episode, and I wept. It was uh, embarrassing, or it would have been embarrassing if there'd been another human being in the room. The cat looked at me funny. That's awesome. And see, Michael, I still remember when we were grad students at UGA, you uh, talked about the... Uh, the cultural allegory of Jungle Book Can't for wait. 15 minutes when we were at lunch once. Oh, yeah. Well, anybody who wants to hear my cultural allegory bit about the Jungle Book, the Blue Negro, I call it, feel free to uh, yes, t- tune indeed. in two days from now to, uh, to Before They Were Live. And listen to Josh patiently humor me. He is a saint. He's he really just is. so patient. Uh, anyways. We should get to the topic, guys. I agree. Uh, well, uh, we're talking about a collection of poems by James Weldon Johnson. Uh, the title of the collection is God's Trombones. And I was actually really excited about this. I met it for the first time um, last week. This was a, you know, a hole in my education. Um, but uh, last week I was introduced to this collection, and was in sort of the, the, the freshness of enthusiasm and 
found out that you already were familiar with this poet, Michael. Um, so who is James Weldon Johnson, and where does he fit in that grand and complicated cultural mom moment that we call the Harlem Renaissance? Yeah, he actually has a fairly complicated position in it because he's a little bit older than most yeah. of the other members of that of that movement. He was born in 1871, so he is well into middle age by the time the Harlem Renaissance kicks in. Um, he's probably most known for writing a song called Lift Every Voice and Sing, which, mm, is, yeah. which is sometimes referred to as the Negro National Anthem. Uh, so probably our listeners have heard that, our African-American listeners, uh, I'm almost certain have. It's, it's a big cultural touchstone, uh, touchstone for African-Americans. I know him from his novel, uh, Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, which, which again is, is uh, from the 1910s. It's before the Harlem Renaissance, but prefigures a lot of the work of the Harlem Renaissance. It has to do with a, a light-skinned African-American who's capable of passing, thus... Uh, thus the title autobiography of an ex-colored man. He, he pretends to be white and, uh, and makes quite a success of his life. I don't remember much about it beyond then. I said, uh, I said last week that I had this was one of the first things I ever presented on at a conference. It's true. I don't remember what the topic of my paper was at all. Uh, so I, I don't know that I can tell you much about it beyond that, but he has a, an important kind of mentoring role in the, uh, in the Harlem Renaissance. And also he, uh, he's closely associated with the NAACP. He was the first executive secretary of the NAACP. Uh, so, I mean, really an important guy and fairly unknown compared to the people in the generation after him. So I imagine our listeners are familiar with people like Langston Hughes or Zora Neale Hurston or even somebody like Nella Larson, whose book Passing is very closely connected to Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. I suspect our listeners are much less familiar with Johnson. And, uh, and that's a shame because he's written some really interesting stuff, including God's Trombones, which is uh, per published in 1927. Uh, during the Harlem Renaissance. Cool. Anything else that you would want to throw in, Nathan? Or no, I am uh, encountering this writer for the first time as well, so I'm I'm anxious to uh, talk about it and bounce some ideas off Michael. Cool, cool. You are our preacher, though, and this this collection is about preaching, and so let's talk about preaching for a second. Um, how does Johnson's introduction to his collection frame his project within the tradition of African-American sermon? Um, and what on earth has that got to do with trombones? Yeah, the trombone uh, caught me off guard a little bit. I assumed it would have something to do with uh, the early years of jazz, but I was wrong. Uh, black preachers, uh, according to Johnson, uh, were really the first shepherds of the African exile, and by African exile, I mean that you have people from different regions in Africa, different tribes, to be sure, different linguistic traditions, uh, who are violently removed from their families and their communities. They are brought to North America, and they are in these, obviously, slave conditions. I mean, it is a violent crime from start to finish, and these black preachers tended to be, according to Johnson, uh, the true geniuses of their communities. Uh, he says that these were people who learned to read faster than anyone else, who mastered English faster than anyone else. Uh, and, you know, in the Protestant areas of North America, as opposed to the Catholic areas, he, he makes that distinction. 
uh, you have the rise of black churches that have their own space for worship, uh, which is very important because that means that their site of ultimate concern uh, is something that is under their control to a much greater extent than the rest of their life is under control. So these black preachers that he talks about, he talks about them as orators and actors. Uh, so their sermons themselves take on a poetic quality. And, and he says that there's times when the discursive line of thought, to use Aristotle's term, is secondary to the performance character of it. And so the trombone bit, uh, he was uh, invited to a, a public event, and he was going to be one of the speakers, and a black minister went on before him. And the black minister started to give uh, what I'll call a talk, something very restrained, something very ordered. And the way that Johnson narrates it, he could tell that the audience was drifting. They were nodding off, they weren't paying attention, so on and so forth. And then the preacher, reading this in the room, stepped out from behind the pulpit, banged on a Bible, and he says he went into uh, this sermonic form, this folk preaching, and he says that what this preacher had was, quote, or was a voice, quote, not of an organ or a trumpet, but rather of a trombone, end quote. Uh, and so his voice, you know, had this very brash quality. Uh, it could back up and, you know, do some piano, but it could also just, you know, blare away with the fortissimo. Uh, it had all kinds of range. It had all kinds of flexibility. And this is what inspired this collection. This is a collection of sermonic poetry that is inspired by those poetic sermons. Uh, so, Michael, I mean, anything else that I missed in that intro that I should have included? No, um, have you spent much time listening to African-American preachers? A, a, a fair bit, probably not as much as some of our listeners, but a fair bit. Do, do, do the sermons here sound like African-American preachers to you? The poems, you mean? Uh, did I call them sermons? You did. Well, they're kind of both, right? Yeah, they're kind of both. I can certainly see some uh, similarities between them. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk about those in more detail as we roll along. But, yeah, I mean, I can, uh, if I hadn't read the introduction, I would have seen here something inspired by uh, either black preaching or mountain preaching. If I didn't know the biography of the author, I might have guessed right. mountain preaching because they are so akin rhetorically. Sure. Yeah. What what strikes me about them, and, and I should look ahead and see if we're talking about this later, but I don't think we are. What strikes me about them is they're they're really there's really not a lot of dialect in them. There's a no. little there's yeah. a little bit, um, but there's not a whole lot. And and I I can't help but think that if Johnson had been 25 years younger, they would have been very very different. Did you did you look at the introduction, Michael? Did you no, I'm afraid the... I didn't. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, okay. he talks about the dialect question at some yeah. length. He says that at some point. Uh, you know, black poetry, and I'm going to say black poetry just because I can't say any variation of the N-word. I, I know some people don't have a problem with that, but I get edgy. Uh, but, you know, when he talks about black poetry, he talks about, uh, you know, when he was younger, the tradition was to write them in dialect, but ultimately that loses a certain flexibility. He says that there's an emotional range that you know, is limited when you write dialect poetry that's not when you write what he calls King James Bible poetry. Sure. And it's definitely got that King James um, yeah. resonance to it. I just wonder what would what this book would be like if Zora Neale Hurston had written it, for example. 
and you have reached the ends of my education, Michael. Say more about what you mean by that. Oh, I mean, Hurston is is super comfortable with dialect. And, and it actually makes her book, Their Eyes Are Watching God, it's kind of hard to read it at some points because there's so much dialect. All the, all the dialogue is in dialect. And I, I think she was probably just more comfortable with that. She had a different version of what it meant to be black in America. Than Johnson did, maybe because maybe because she wasn't born six years after the end of slavery. You know what I mean? Right, All these right. things come in, come in waves, and so you you have a period that he's referring to, where dialect poetry is the thing to do. The the Paul uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar is that the fellow's name? Yeah. And then you then you move into a period where um, African American literary or philosophical English becomes wider for lack of a better term and then it moves back in the other direction and i just i i i'm i it's just fun to think about what what somebody like hurston or another person who was more comfortable with dialect would have done with uh with these poems doesn't make what he did bad but it's it's a very different sort of poem let me put it this way if hurston wrote it there's no way you would mistake it for being mountain sermons ah point taken no that makes a lot of sense he, I mean, when he talks about it in, I, I found that really interesting in the introduction because it was something that I had, I'd noted too. Um, but he, for, for him, it is, it is all about the tone and for, and he doesn't seem to have an aversion to writing the dialect as it were, because the, um, in sort of poking around, I found other collections of his poetry in which he actually does use that mode um but for him he he in that introduction he talks about it as a mode that's appropriate for certain kinds of purposes and he actually seems to say that in that in the oratory itself that in the oratory of the sermons the 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 speech of of black preachers was different than the than the ordinary daily speech because it becomes um uh, instilled with with that tenor of of a more learned rhetoric that is drawing a lot on um, the language, the rhythms of the King James. Yeah. So you know he he he's he's thought this through. It's it, I find it um, the 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 choice is interesting, but but he's he's doing it on purpose, and he feels that this accomplishes particular kind of things i i thought that was uh i thought that was really interesting yeah and you do get a little bit of of dialect so for example in the first poem which i know we're going to talk about in a minute uh line 18 he, he's talking to jesus and tells him to mount his milk white horse and ride a this morning i won't try to do an african-american uh voice if that's okay with everybody um and but other than that Nathan's right. This this really could this really could be a uh, a white country preacher instead, and maybe Rida could be too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing there... that the other thing that t- would tip you off, I think, is the number of times he quotes African American spirituals, especially "Oh Mary, Don't You Weep." That one gets quoted at least at least three times in these poems. And again, my lack of familiarity would mean I still might call it a mountain sermon. 
<laughs> and again, you know, I don't know, I don't know White Mountain religion all that well. Maybe, maybe Mary, don't you weep has made it there. And I don't know that yeah. either. So I, I, <laughs> I'm going to be saying that a lot this episode. I feel like there's a horizon at which those those two traditions of spiritual music touch. There's a lot that those things have in common. Sure. Um, sure. Well, you already brought it up, Michael, but the first poem, Listen, Lord, is what Johnson calls a preliminary prayer, which I presume means the prayer before the sermon and not the invocation at the beginning of the service. But yeah, that's, that's how I take it. Okay. So what is the purpose of such a prayer in a Christian liturgy? And how does this particular prayer fit into Johnson's presentation of traditional African-American congregational worship? Well, uh, it made me think of my very non-African-American Presbyterian minister's prayer before he preaches every Sunday, which it, it, it says something like, take this the words of this very imperfect man and use them. And I, I think that's very much yeah. what you're getting yeah. Here, except it's not just the words that need to be used, it's the man himself. So this is a prayer of purification. Before he preaches the word, um, he, has to, he has to be purified. And by, uh, by association, the entire con- uh, congregation is purified. So one thing you'll notice about this, and I hope our listeners will go read these. Uh, there's a link to them in the show notes. You can probably read the whole thing in an hour and a half if you're not taking extensive notes the way we did. Uh, there's only eight poems, but if if you look at the first uh, the first stanza of "Listen, Lord," it's in it's in first person plural. Oh Lord, we come this morning. The second stanza is uh, uh, third person plural. Lord, have mercy on proud and dying sinners. Mm-hmm. Then the third stanza is third person singular, talking about the preacher. And now, oh Lord, this man of God. And then finally, the fourth stanza is first person singular. So the preacher is speaking of himself now. And now, oh Lord, when I've done drunk my last cup of sorrow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, whatever purification ritual the, the preacher is undergoing, and it's clear that's, that's what it is because he talks about being washed in hyssop. Yeah. Um, this is something he's going through alongside the congregation, only he gets more of it. The congregation gets some, he gets what they get plus some because he is the representative of God or however however the theology would put it. Anything you would add to that, Nathan? Yeah, I think that that uh, stanza that Michael referred to, you know, the, the blessing on the preacher, I mean, is, is just really fascinating because, again, you get that mix of, uh, you know, what I'm more familiar with with the mountain preacher rhythm uh, but with that, you know, very King James vocabulary, right? So, I mean, just to read a few lines, Lord turpentine his imagination, put perpetual motion in his arms, fill him of the dynamite of thy power, anoint him all over with the oil of thy salvation, and set his tongue on fire. I mean, this is, uh, you know, again, this mixture of, you know, modern and biblical images. It's really, yeah. uh, you know, just striking 
uh, in the in the juxtaposition of, of images. And and when you're talking about the modern images, there's also a mixture of very homely inter, uh, images like tur turpentine, his imagination, mixed with images from contemporary physics. Put perpetual motion in his arm. My favorite line, maybe in the whole book, put his eye to the telescope of eternity and let him look upon the paper walls of time. I don't That's know that I can explain it. I don't know if I can explain it, but there's something quantum about that, right? It's lovely. It's so lovely. So yeah, th this is this is a, a really remarkable poem, and it it not only not only in universe does it show the preacher preparing for the sermon, it tells us what to expect of the sermons that are coming. I don't actually know the answer to this question because all I've read is is this collection and then a few other poems from other collections. But Michael, do you actually know whether this is? Um, a pious exercise for Johnson or whether he's doing um, uh, a, a sincere poetic identification with the voice that he's trying to capture. I, I um, do not think it was a pious exercise. I don't think Johnson was pious in any traditional sense of that word. Okay. Which, which Could, makes these a little more interesting, doesn't it? Because yeah. know, knowing that when I was reading them, I was trying to see... If he's trying to, if he's critiquing black religion in some way, and I couldn't really find a whole lot of critique, it seems pretty sincere, even if, even if the voice of the preacher is a long way from Johnson's own voice. Okay. Because it was very hard for me to not read it as a pious exercise on my part. Um, you know, certainly I'm still, you know, I've still got my PhD and all the rest of it. But, Good to know they didn't take that away yet. Right, right. But there are some really, there are just some really great passages in here that work on on that level of poetry for piety, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and and it, I, I don't know that he wouldn't want you to have that reaction. It's hard to tell, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's I mean, something he, anthropological about this. I think I think that's that's important though. Like he what he is he's giving you a time and place in addition to whatever else he's doing. Yeah. And he talks about it as as folklore as if this is uh in the in the introduction. I th I think I remember that Nathan that he talks about this a bit as this is an area of folklore that is that is understudied or underdocumented or something on that order. Um, yeah, I remember that as well. Uh -huh. Another reason I would really, I would really have liked to have seen Zora Neale Hurston, who you know had an advanced degree in anthropology, I think, uh, tackle something like this. And maybe she did. You know, I'm not familiar with everything she wrote. Have you guys read Hurston? Yeah. I've brought her up several times now. No, I have not. I know. I, I know I read something of her of hers back as an undergraduate, but since all my graduate and postgraduate stuff was, you know, in Europe, Middle Ages, you know, before the invention of steam engines, or like it was, it was, it was very much in a different different area. We're we're dealing with um, a, a range of things that is. In, in, in a vast gap in my education.
Well, her novel is Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is good. Right. I right. would, if you want a quick introduction to Hurston, what she is, her authorial voice, there's a short essay called How It Feels to Be Colored Me that I'm sure if you Google, you'll find. And uh, I, I would really encourage everybody to read that. It's a wonderful essay. Excellent. Well, Johnson calls the sort of sermon that these poems present stereotyped, and he calls it an old, the old folk sermon. Um, it reminds me of what patristic writers called the rule of faith, um, which, and uh, I'm, I'm getting these quotes from Michael Kruger's Christianity at the Crossroads, um, his uh, book about second century Christianity, but he calls it a history of redemption that, quote, typically runs through in chronological order, beginning with creation and ending with consummation. And I'm thinking of things like um, Irenaeus of Lyon's demonstration of the apostolic preaching. So, Nathan, how is this sermon, all of these poems together, as a sermon, taken as a whole, doing a job that Christians of many times and many traditions would recognize? And do you also see it doing things that represent the African-American church particularly? Sure, sure. And and when I think about this question, it uh, makes me think of a theologian. You know, listeners, you might expect me to go to James Cone on this, but it actually makes me think of George Lindbeck uh, and his distinction right. between doctrine and theology. So without a doubt, the narratives, the symbols, and the vocabularies of this collection of poetry are recognizably the Christian tradition. Uh, as David noted, uh, it begins with a creation poem that we're going to talk about. Uh, it goes through, you know, um, Noah and Moses and so on and so forth. Uh, it gets you to the crucifixion, you know, you get to, you know, some church militant kind of stuff that we'll touch on later. But it is, uh, it's a cycle. Uh, it is, you know, the story of redemption, as we just said. So uh, when it comes to that, the differences that you find are differences within that symbolic narrative discursive tradition. So the differences themselves, I mean, a few things that, that jump out to me. Uh, one is that, you know, when you do uh, get to talking about Moses, it is a Moses that, uh, now I will bring James Cone in, James Cone would recognize this is a Moses who... Uh, not only calls the people to righteousness, but also calls Pharaoh and the latter-day Pharaohs to judgment. Uh, this is a collection of Christian narratives that always run parallel to the experiences of black people in America. Uh, so you get references to traveling to the city, you get references to working in the fields, you get references to all sorts of things that are very modern experiences. Uh, so, I mean, as a, a theological collection, uh, it has, and, you know, it has both sides of what I think of as a message that, you know, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X would both recognize as a modern black experience. On the one hand, there is a moral call uh, that, you know, really Malcolm more than Martin in some ways uh, was calling people away from the vices that are self-destructive. Uh, on the other hand, there's definitely a sense of a grand cosmic narrative of redemption and of liberation and of justification. So both of those elements are in there. Uh, so again, you know, certainly uh, a, a modern reader, 
and a white reader like myself, you know, might find things where we differ. Uh, you know, some of the things that where we differ, I'm going to save for conversations about particular poems. Uh, but you know, by and large, I mean, this is a recognizable body of Christian narratives and vocabularies. Um, uh, David, I mean, you know, as far as the, uh, patristic tradition, that seems to be largely a check against heresy, whereas this one seems to function more primarily as a forging of a common identity. Would you, would you grant that distinction or am I overplaying it? I don't think you're overplaying it. Certainly the, the, the early centuries of the church were much more, um, uh, much more centered on, uh, the problem of, of heresy without and, um, defending themselves, um, from, from, from skeptics outside. So, you know, the, the polemicist within and the apologist without, um, still though, one of the things that, um, the scholars of the patristics talk about is the rule of faith functioning as a larger structure in which reading of particular Bible passages um, comes to make more sense. So that it, um, it it's functioning in a lot of the same ways that someone like, uh, well, N.T. Wright's grand under, uh, understanding of what the grand narrative of scripture is. Uh, and how that leads him to read particular texts um, as as fitting into this um, this larger narrative that includes you know whole swaths of histories and prophecy and and so forth. Um, so in 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 that sense, um, it's it's guiding. I, I could see this as as having a function for guiding the listeners as readers, but not just readers of the Bible and interpreters of the Bible, but also readers of their own experience. And one of the things, uh, did a Profiles interview a couple years ago with uh, Kevin Van Hooser in his book about pastors as, um, pastors as public theologians and as, uh, as, as public intellectuals. And one of the things that he talked about was pastors using sermons as a tool for helping uh, the people in their congregation think about their own lives within the larger narrative reality um, that Christianity presents. And I really felt I saw this collection doing those things. This, this very perennially Christian, but also necessarily culturally honed task. I can see that. I can see that. Anyway, I mean, I'm deeply nerdy about that thing. And so it, it's, it's one of the things that I saw. I wondered if I wondered what it would be like, um, if you were someone who was in a congregation listening to sermons like this regularly, how, how does that shape the way that you think? And I, I love, I loved what you were, pointing out the connection between Cone and the Exodus poem. Um, that, that last line in the, in the Exodus poem, who do you think can hold God's people when the Lord God himself has said, let my people go? Directed- Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's something. I mean, if, if we didn't actually read it in Cone, I can imagine reading it in Cone. Yeah. 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 Well, Michael, I am a little obsessed with creation stories. 
so the creation poem here was fascinating to me. But of the many questions <laughs> that we could chase, um, I'll just pose this one. What would I think about how I relate to God in the world if this is my creation story? Well, you would think of God as being lonely, because that's the first thing we actually hear about him in the poem. And God stepped out on space, and he looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. So um, this is heterodox, to say the least, right? That, that God made the world because he was in need of something, and you miss that. Uh, that interrelationship among the Trinity, which I've heard uh, called the reason God is never lonely. But God creates the world out of a kind of personal need. And while Johnson doesn't explicitly connect that with uh, with the line in, in Genesis about it's not good for man to be alone, that's what I thought of every time it came up and mm -hmm. God talked about being lonely. And in fact, after he makes everything but man, God says, I'm lonely still. The implication being that Human beings are God's rightful companion. The other thing mm -hmm. I would want to point out about the way the way Johnson narrates the creation is that God is very hands-on. In, in the Genesis account, which I reread when I read the poem, uh, in the Genesis account, God kind of snaps his anthropomorphic fingers and things happen. He, he says it and it just comes into being. Here, well, here's the description of... Uh, of making the sun. Then God reached out and took the light in his hands and God rolled the light around in his hands until he made that sun, the sun. And then he set that sun ablazing in the heavens and the light that was left from making the sun, God gathered it up in a shining ball and flung it against the darkness, spangling the night with the moon and the stars. So you had this, this picture of, of God being very intimately, very physically involved in the creation of the world, as opposed to being totally separate from that creation. Uh, and the, the end result is that at times this creation account sounds a little bit like a tall tale, like, uh, like Paul Bunyan or Pecos Bill accidentally created. Yeah. There, there's something to that. So he says... Uh, he spat out the seven seas. That's the one. That's the one that made me uh, that made me think of of Pecos Bill, who uh, yeah. I think spits out the Gulf of Mexico or something. I thought it was the Rio Grande. Yeah, it is the Rio. But Grande. you're probably right. You're probably right. Whatever. There's multiple versions of all those stories, but there's that, expectorating. Yeah, but but you have you have that kind of uh, folk tradition that goes into this poem, and that makes total sense because. The African-American sermon is often considered part of that same folk tradition, or at least a related one. So it makes sense that it would make its way into the poem. Certainly, I wouldn't want to teach theology with this poem, but in terms of a poetic account of the creation of the world, it's pretty great. Yeah, I can't remember, David, the, the phrase that he uses in the introduction, something like unblushingly anthropomorphic or something like that. That sounds right. <laughs> I mean, it it is, um, it is it's it's definitely anthropomorphic, but it's also, um, I, I like I, I liked that connection to the tall tale and in in the folk tradition, uh, Michael, because there, there's it's not it's not just that, you know, if 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 you just said that it was anthropomorphic, then then you could then all that you would get is 
and here's here's some bad theology by someone who needs to internalize more God as transcendent or something. Um, but it, it occurred to me that this is this is also a God who interacts with the world in the way that someone who is outside working with their hands a lot mm-hmm. does. You know that that God sort of walks around and looks at things and rolls things together and pushes and and pulls and pokes and interacts. This is not, you know, this is not a, a distanced God. This is not a God in the house giving orders. This is a God who gets out and, and, and touches things. Um, which, which made me think of, you know, if, if what he's presenting here is supposed to be not just, um, some, some kind of African-American sermon in, in a void, but he specifically talks about how this is growing out of the uh, the preaching of uh, the preaching of, of of men who were not themselves free, right? You know that this is looking back at a time in which um, here God here God and man in the image of God um, looks more like someone who behaves the way the audience thinks of as, as kind of ordinary. Um, so that even, even your, your everyday activities of, of, of interacting with the world seem more like the way God works in the world, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Very homely images. Sense. On yeah. the other hand, David, my uh, imp of the perverse would like to throw this poem out onto reform Twitter and watch him freak out. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, and, 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 you know, there's, there's part of me that's thinking that too. Right. (laughs) Um, on the other hand, I'm also thinking like the image that goes with this, we haven't talked a lot about the illustrations, but I love the picture that goes with this one, that, that, that hand reaching down out of these kind of art deco clouds or whatever, whatever the, the art style is. And just that, that silhouette of a man, a dark silhouette of a dark man looking back up at that hand. Um, a little bit like Michelangelo with the, with the hands, uh, the gesture of the hands, but, but, but definitely not exactly like that. Yeah. The, the illustrations are pretty great. They're very stylized. Mm-hmm. Uh, two other things that I would point out about this poem. Number one, the rainbow shows up in it. Yeah, which, that was which, interesting. Which seems like an oversight, but I started thinking. I think I think the preacher is emphasizing that the covenant begins even before Noah. Huh. That the the covenant is with the first human beings and not just with the ones who were spared the flood, because of course the rainbow shows back up in the uh, in the in the in the uh, flood poem. And then the other yeah. thing is he presents God as having feminine characteristics. He says, this great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay till he shaped it in its own image. I, I, I just thought that was interesting, especially given, as, as we'll discuss later, uh, women are not treated terribly well in these poems. So it's nice to see, it's nice to see God having a female nature as well as a male one. That, that. 
that image of care that that comes in that. Right, which is not an unbiblical image. You don't see it necessarily right. in Genesis, but God's com- compared to like a mother hen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some other imagery. Uh, I can't can't trace down where. Um, the prophets, if I remember right. Uh, yeah, but I didn't prep this for this episode, so I, I'm afraid I can't conjure the chapter and verse right now. I'm going to gesture vaguely at the Old Testament. Um, I looked back at that rainbow reference you said, Michael. The rainbow appeared and curled itself around his shoulder. Isn't that lovely? It is. It's like it's like the rainbow is God's cat. <laughs> yeah, my cat is trying to get my attention, so I'm sorry if you guys can hear him. Excellent. Her. Well, Nathan, uh, the sermon's version of the parable of the prodigal son sets that story much more directly into a contemporary context, especially when you set it next to the illustration. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's highly stylized in the way that you just talked about, Michael. And, and this one, it even has, you know, you know brass instruments kind of sticking out of the margins and playing cards and money and whatnot. Very, very contemporary. Now, am I right to find the vision of personal vice in this sermon in a tension with the more social focus of an African-American theologian like James Cone? Or is something more complicated than that happening? Uh, I think, yes, it does focus on personal vice uh, far more than James Cone's work does. And also, I think it's something more complicated. So I'll, I'll say yes to all of the above. Yay. Uh, so the image that uh, this poem presents uh, is, as you said, the prodigal son reimagined. Uh, I, I realize that, you know, this uh, collection of poetry is decades before the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, but if Malcolm weren't telling his own story, I'd say that he based his accounts of his young years in Boston off of this poem. Uh, this is a place of gambling, uh, of music, of women of the night, of all sorts of things. As we said, the uh, illustration at the beginning of this poem uh, it has a gigantic uh, jack of spades foregrounded in front of the dancers in the front. You've got what looks like a trombone's bell sticking down into the image. You've got dollar bills. Someone has made it rain, it appears. Um, and you know, this is Babylon, uh, which is not an element in the, uh, you know, the parable as Jesus tells it in the gospel of Luke, but it fits, uh, you know, this is a place of vice, but it's also a place of exile. So, I mean, in that respect, uh, to call it Babylon is to add a complication that is not there in the gospel of luke's parable right because babylon is certainly a place that the prophets talk about as a place where israel uh loses its holiness loses its identity loses its covenant with god but it's also a place of violent exile it's a place where they were dragged not some place that they went on their own so there's a sense here and again uh, i i i realize I'm, I'm being anachronistic all over the place here but you know, I, I just uh, read through the autobiography of Malcolm X with a group of students uh, here at Emmanuel, and I mean, it is amazing that, you know, although Malcolm doesn't use the Babylon imagery, he could have, and it would have been a perfect template for the way that he describes 
uh, Boston and then Harlem in the autobiography of Malcolm X because it is at the same place, uh, a place where they are not at home. Uh, they are surrounded by racism. And it is also a place where their own vices, their gambling, their drinking, their overeating, their, you know, sexual appetites are destroying them. So, you know, it's, uh, there's all kinds of, of, you know, complexity going on here. Uh, and, you know, frankly, I mean, when you said it next to the poem, Let My People Go, which is the Moses poem, um, you know, it is a very telling and very complex picture of life in America for the faithful, right? Uh, you know, whether Johnson himself was a believer or not, uh, he is doing some interesting theology here. And I guess I'm reminded, and this, you know, goes back to my own weird little academic history. Uh, I'm reminded of the fact that I learned, you know, how to do Christian theology from, among other people, Stanley Fish and his books on John Milton. Uh, you know, Stanley Fish, as far as I can tell, hasn't worshipped Jesus a day in his life, but he knows how to frame theological questions about as well as anyone. Mm. Yeah, I, I, that, yeah, I, I really, I really, really enjoyed this, uh, the, the opening of this poem, young man, young man, your arms too short to box with God. A, a phrase that Johnson actually coined in autobiography of an ex-colored man. It's kind of a cliche really? now, but it's Johnson's original. Oh, and I, nice. I assumed he had appropriated that from black homilies he invented that maybe he got it from homilies but i believe x colored man is the first place it was written down okay that, that makes good sense that's really cool i loved it though this is the first place i met it so i i love how the the older son just kind of falls out of the story just not even yes. interested in him and yeah his... the, the poem says every young man is one of them but we don't hear much about the other. So well, it sounds like the other the other son is unequivocally praised, right? Because he doesn't leave. Yeah. It's interesting because a lot of times when you hear sermons on the prodigal son, uh, one of the messages is, "Hey, and if you're like the older son, uh, maybe you shouldn't be a jerk to your younger son when he repents and comes home." Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting. I, I kept waiting for that to happen, and it didn't. I was interested in that. Yeah, it's much more about, you know, resist the trap. It's almost like a mashup of, I, I love the, the I, I like the, your, you know, the detention that you paid to this being Babylon, Nathan. But it also reminded me of those proverbs where, you know, the, you know, the, the, the narrator of the proverb is sort of looking out of his window watching some poor sap get led away by the strange woman um you know he, he and he's up there like admiral akbar it's a trap it's a trap and oh sure sure well and that's what makes babylon complicated too because as we know from you know reading the old testament uh it's not as if israel could have any day said i think i'll leave babylon right right so it's a trap and you're already trapped. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, gentlemen, we have, we've been, I've been having a good time with this, um, but there's so much more of this poetry and so, so little time to talk about it all. So 
as we wind down our conversation, what are some more things that, a few more things that you'd like to point our listeners toward um, when they go and read this on their own? Because you know, you know, you've got to, dear listener, you must do this. It's an assignment. We're gonna we're gonna be checking. So, Michael. Uh, Women, as I said earlier, don't come off great in these poems. We've talked a little bit about Babylon, but it's the women of Babylon who are truly terrible. Uh, And in fact, uh, he has to to go work for the pigs, not when there's a famine in the land, as Luke has it, but when the sweet-sinning women of Babylon stripped him of his money, stripped him of his clothes, and left him broke and ragged so the women don't come off looking great there. Even in Let My People Go, uh, he suggests that the only reason Pharaoh went after the Israelites after they escaped was that his wife told him he'd better do it. And then, (laughs) (laughs) you know, some of these things are clearly supposed to be jokes, but also it adds up to something. And I don't know what to make of it. I don't know how much of it is, you know, Johnson having been born in 1871, how much of this he's meant to approve of. I don't know. But the the really big offender is Noah built the ark. Uh, And in Noah built the ark, it actually doesn't begin with Noah. It begins with the fall of man. And it moves on from there, showing you this is a poem about sin in general, not about anything particular with Noah. But his description of Satan's temptation of Eve is, uh, well, uh, not entirely pleasant. Then pretty soon along came Satan. Old Satan came like a snake in the grass to try out his tricks on the woman. I imagine I can see old Satan now sidling up to the women. I, I imagine the first word Satan says was, Eve, you're surely good looking. And you can, you know, break for applause there. You can just hear the congregation laughing at that including the women. Uh, I imagine he brought her a present too. And if there was such a thing in those ancient days, he brought her a looking glass. The implication being the reason human beings fell is Eve's personal vanity about her physical appearance. So again, am I saying, oh, these poems are terrible. They should be burned. No, of course I'm not saying that. But there's some weird stuff about women in here that probably reflect the 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 society that they come out of uh, in terms of I, I I assume these are like the sermons Johnson listened to when he was growing up and I I assume it's just a replication of those things but uh, interesting and kind of unpleasant back there six thousand years ago man first will fell by a woman Lord and he's doing the same today right right and again you, oh you, man you have to imagine the congregation <laughs> laughing or applauding at, at some of these lines. Yeah. Well, Nathan? Uh, The one that I want to focus on is a poem in the collection that really doesn't fit neatly uh, into the, you know, the narrative of salvation. It's called Go Down Death, A Funeral Sermon. Uh, And it is fascinating because uh, whether or not Johnson was familiar with the Middle English text, uh, it does some things that every man does. Uh, Everyman, which of course we, we talked about several episodes ago this season. Uh, most notably, uh, it treats death basically as a messenger uh, sent from God in order to rescue Sister Caroline from her pain and her suffering. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, certainly different from St. Paul, you know, taunting death, where is your victory, where is your sting? Uh, but it's one that uh, either by, you know, direct or indirect influence or by uh, simple parallel invention, uh, we've got the casting of death 
as simply another agent of God in this poem. And in fact, we get lines like this. And God said, go down, death, go down, go down to Savannah, Georgia. So, you know, it is a very straightforward, you know, uh, you know, mission of death to, you know, claim people to rescue them from their pain. So in some ways, and, I, and I'm reminded in the introduction, David, that he, he mentions that uh, people were certainly brought together by these, ser- these sermons, but they're also, I think his word was narcotized by them. They were made sleepy by them. There's a, there's a there's a Marxist critique going on here, so I found that interesting. That you know that is something that is preserved in that funeral sermon. Interesting. Well, we already talked about most of the stuff that I'm interested in, uh, but there's a couple. Uh, there's two little lines in his poem, "The Crucifixion," where uh, he pays attention to Jesus carrying the cross. Um, I see my Jesus go, I see him sink beneath the load, I see my drooping Jesus sink. Then they laid hold on Simon. Black Simon, yes, Black Simon. They put the cross on Simon, and Simon bore the cross. Well, Simon of Cyrene um, is, well, Cyrene, Cyrenica, uh, is in North Africa. Um, I don't actually know uh, the... uh, the reception of that tradition, but here at least uh, there seems to be an identification of of Simon as a uh, as a as a, a black character in the story, which I think is uh, I think I think that's interesting, and it's one that um, the the ge- the geography referenced in the Gospels. Um, I, th- I think people would latch on to that, and that makes good sense to me. Well, what are we going to be doing next week? Well, uh, many years ago, we did a, a, tri- a trio of episodes on uh, Richard M. Weaver, the American rhetorician. We're going to go back to him, and we're going to do the essay called Education and the Individual for next week. Very cool. Always looking, Always look forward to returning to Richard Weaver. How funny. I, I remember uh, reading for our original Richard Weaver triptych in, in the airport on my way to interview at Crown. It seems very appropriate that we're uh, it'll be one of the last I read as an employee here. Sunrise, sunset. I, don't, don't, don't make me sing it, man. It's twice now in this episode that I've risked making the two of you sing. well dear listeners um if you want to thank us for not singing or request that we do or comment on this uh this episode and uh its topics its reading uh if you read the rest of it and want to tell us your thoughts by all means do for whatever reason you contact us please do you can contact us on our facebook page you can contact us via gmail at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com and finally you can post uh, comments in the show notes on our blog christianhumanist.org when those post in the meanwhile christian humanist podcast is a show on the christian humanist radio network our press liaison is kristen philippic Our intern is Ellen Peterson, and I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sin be strong, 
Let your faith be stronger.